Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review, because I know some podcast providers, they don't allow you to leave those reviews. Sharing the podcast with others on social media or elsewhere or emailing, whatever, that's usually how the show grows anyway. So I'm always appreciative when I hear you guys share the show and let people know that you're listening. This week, I want to give a special shout out to a friend of the show, Jerry, who sent in a picture to me of a deer he shot while hunting and listening to this podcast. And I wanted to mention that because I just wanted to say, see, we get you results on this show. How many other political podcasts do you know and can and are you listening to that have a literal kill count next to it? I mean, come on, that's pretty cool, right? But anyway, thanks for the reviews and letting me know you guys are listening. I always like hearing from you, and I like hearing about where you're listening from because it's pretty interesting to hear. In this week's show, we're going to cover Trump's legal cases to some extent and then whether or not the race is over, the 2020 campaign. We're going to talk about whether or not it's over, where we go from here. I sort of touched on some of this in the newsletter, and I'm sort of going to expound on some of that. That'll be in the first segment. In the segment segment, we're going to bring back the coronavirus update that I was doing before the election really got kicking into gear. So I'm going to dive into the latest numbers on the coronavirus and talk about the issues ahead with the vaccine. And in the light item segment for this week, I'm going to be highlighting some of the new members of the Republican House that are coming in this year. So that's the agenda for today's show, and we'll just jump right in. So this is probably one of the last election updates I'll do this year because it just things do look like it's over with this race. And again, you know, it's 2020, so you know, anything is possible with this year. I fully admit to that. But for all intents and purposes, as I'm watching these recounts come in, as I'm looking at the legal cases, this election is pretty much over. Biden won. Trump is going to run again in 2024. I would be shocked if anything else happened there. But the 2020 race as it sits right now is over with Joe Biden as the president elect. In the newsletter, I focused on talking through the allegations of of election fraud versus the fake news that's so prevalent right now. That's why I started that thing out just going through a bullet point of all of the things that I know I've seen on social media and I know I've had other people ask about just going through everything through there. So if you haven't read that, I do recommend it because it's a good resource, if nothing else. If you see these claims on social media, you can reference some of these things and say, okay, This is true. This isn't true. And just for the most part, most of what you're seeing on social media is just false. It's either fraudulently edited and put together, or it's just a bad meme. So everything there is bad. 
And so when you cut all of that away and you look at what is real, what are the real things that we have here, you're left with the lawsuits in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and elsewhere. And so if Trump is going to win, he's got to overturn He's either got to overturn all the results in the Midwest through a lawsuit. So that's going to mean Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. He's got to overturn all three of those. Or he's got to win one of these recount states in Arizona or Georgia. Now, the important thing here is that the Trump campaign dropped their lawsuit in Arizona. That state and any path that involved it, that's now closed. Arizona's done in Joe Biden won that state. I don't see them going back there because they haven't indicated that they're going back there. It looks like all their resources are being pulled out of there. So Arizona's closed. Next up is Georgia, the second of these big recount states. And what I did as I was preparing for the show is I went and I was looking at local reporting out of Atlanta specifically, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. It's been there forever. And so they're one of many local outlets there that's reporting on the hand recount. Unlike a lot of these national outlets, they actually know the people who are in these places, and so they they have well really good sources. And so they had a report that said the following, uh, and this was specifically related to Fulton County and Atlanta. So they said, vote counting appeared to go smoothly in Metro Atlanta on Sunday, the third day of the state's sweeping manual recount of the 5 million ballots cast in the presidential contest. No irregularities or significant tabulation errors emerged during the first two days of the recount, officials said Saturday. Counting will continue through 11.59 p.m. on Wednesday. So at some point late Wednesday, early, early morning Thursday, we're going to have all the official results from this recount. There are no indications so far that they have encountered anything in the way of fraud, tabulation errors, the machines were wrong. None of that's coming out here. And if any of that was happening, I suspect we would have heard something from the poll watchers or any of the Republicans or Democrats on the scene. That would have leaked. So it appears that Joe Biden's roughly 14,000 vote lead in Georgia, I think if he was either 14 or 16,000, that looks like it's going to stand. And Georgia is going to wrap up on Wednesday or Thursday. And with no major reports of any changes occurring in the votes, that is where the recount states fall apart. That's where you're losing Arizona and Georgia. And so if there ever was going to be a state where you proved something untoward was happening in these states, it'd be Georgia. And that's not because Georgia has reports of fraud, but it's because they're doing a full-on hand recount of every ballot in the state. So we're going to get a chance. They're going to get a chance to look at all of it. And so if nothing's happened there, and Joe Biden has legitimately won Arizona and Georgia, and both these states are run by Republicans, that door is shut. That means Joe Biden has the 11 electoral votes of Arizona and the 16 of Georgia. And he's effectively secure at that point because the odds of Trump overcoming the number of votes that happened across the Midwest, because he would have to overturn them via a legal order because the reason I kept pointing to Georgia and Arizona is because the number of votes that needed to switch hands in order for those states to change, those states to change, was pretty small. You're only looking at about fourteen thousand each case. That's a pretty big a number for a recount overturned, but it is still within the universe of possibilities. 
when you get into Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, the number of votes you need to change there to change everything is astronomical. So when you're talking, when you're going into the courts, you're effective. If you want to change the results of this in the courts, you're effectively asking judges across these three states to either toss out or strike down approximately 250 to 300,000 Joe Biden votes, and to do this in the court system. That is just something that is highly unlikely to occur. So the main Supreme Court case out of Pennsylvania allegedly only involves around 10,000 ballots. And so even if that was to its fullest extent true, and even if you're willing to say, well, maybe it's double and they're not being truthful, and it's maybe it's 20, maybe even 30,000, that is not enough ballots to change to overcome what we know Joe Biden's margin is. I think as of today, his margin was around sixty to 65,000. And so ten to 30,000 here, and I'm being super generous with that number, is not enough to change the outcome with that one court case. And so we're in the territory here where you're talking about things that are just highly unlikely to occur. And no court wants to strike down votes without complete assurance that the ballots involved are either totally illegal or they violate some specific law dealing with timing or some other technicality where you're really just following the hard letter of the law. Now, Donald Trump tweeted late Sunday, he tweeted the following. He says, Many of the court cases being filed all over the country are not ours, but rather those of people that have seen horrible abuses. Our big cases showing the unconstitutionality of the 2020 election and the outrage of things that were done to change the outcome will soon be filed. So what he's suggesting here is that more court cases are going to be filed. Frankly, I'm unclear where they're going to file these because... Or, or even what the allegations would be, because there's just not enough ballots to justify any kind of legal maneuver that will strike these things down. Now, if they do file these things, I'll let their filing speak for themselves. If they've got the goods, they can file in court, and we'll see what they have. But so far, in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, they've had more wins in Pennsylvania, and things have been better there. But what they've been able to strike down has been very small there. And again, the biggest case that they've had out of there has involved 10,000, and that one has not you know, dealt with any fru- come to fruition yet. And we don't even know if those ballots are all Biden. They could be evenly split between the two, and so it's still not going to change anything. So there are a lot of assumptions being made and baked into what is in a lot of these ballots. And again, I'll let, if they got their filings, they, they can... They can file them, and we'll see what they have. But in the newsletter, I mentioned Michigan and the 234 pages of affidavits there. And the judge in that case was very irate. He came out the next day and was striking down all sorts of stuff related to that, just saying a lot of this was just utter nonsense, and it didn't prove anything. And so that's a weak case. But it was also the reason I highlighted it is because it was the best case they had, even though it is an extraordinarily weak case. So the odds here of them finding anything are small. Now, they may have it in their court filings, and we'll find out soon. But just as that is also a possibility of them having something here and making a court filing out of it, it's also possible that the exact opposite is true, and we see them do 
the exact opposite, which is rescind these lawsuits and just sort of give up and lay down their arms on this. Because pushing a multi-state lawsuit is expensive. And so sooner or later, you're just going to hit the point of diminishing returns where you can fight, you may have a, you may have a legitimate lawsuit, but it's not going to change anything. And so it's just a, you know, a big pile of wasted money. If you can't take Arizona and Georgia through legal recounts and your only hope is a multi-state lawsuit involving Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, then it doesn't make sense to file these loser lawsuits that are going to change nothing, especially if you don't have anything because you're just burning campaign money at this point. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Trump campaign started withdrawing some of these lawsuits over the next week or two. That is just as likely, if not more likely, than them saying they're going to file even more claims. Because it is true that some of these cases that are being filed do not have them directly as the people who are, you know, going through all the the motions here. It involves Republican parties of these states. But that's not a very big difference because you've got to have this evidence. And these parties are in this state, and so they're going to have that evidence too. So I would say it's equally as likely that you see the Trump campaign start withdrawing and just you know, giving up basically and saying, Biden won, we will just, you know, start pulling out and save our money on this because it's not going to change anything. And there are signs that the Trump administration knows this race is over too. Trump effectively acknowledged that Biden had won in tweets earlier in the day on Sunday when this one came out, where he said Joe Biden, you know, he'd won, but the election was rigged he, and he was refusing to concede. So, I mean, that's all fine. The, the Constitution kicks in at this point and dictates what happens going forward. All this fighting over whether you concede or not is all about cultural norms. It's not about anything legal. And it was pretty clear heading into this race that neither campaign was going to concede whatever the results were. Biden and Democrats were already making noise that they were going to contest all these different states if they lost. And, you know, they were going to do the exact same thing that Donald Trump is doing now. And this was all happening prior to Election Day. I even had a, a column come out at some point, I think it was early October, where I said the, the elites in this election had already rejected the results of the race. They wanted one result, and they had rejected it before it already came out. I think that's basically true. Everyone in our, was planning on you know rejecting whatever the results of this election were. So this is, for better or worse, the new normal, where campaigns are just not accepting the results of an election. And you know this has been this isn't it's been true of partisans going back to the year two thousand in particular because you had Democrats who said that the Supreme Court stole the election for Bush, which was untrue. Bush v. Gore didn't change anything. And then in 2004, you had Democrats come out and say that the voting machines, and specifically in Florida, ended up giving the election to Bush there, which was also untrue. It was the Diebold conspiracy theory. You can look that up. And they were hopping mad over that, but there was no proof of that. They had that conspiracy theory. And you flash forward to 2016. Democrats rejected the results of that one. Hillary Clinton still doesn't think that, is still acting like she you know, actually won that race, even though there's not a shred of evidence that the Russians flipped one vote in that race. It was just a matter of her being the worst candidate in American history. So, you know, congrats to Hillary on that honor. So the other sign that this race is over is that the Trump administration is leaking to friendly reporters what they plan to do in their remaining time, which is over the next nine to 10 weeks. The primary goal they have, according to 
Axios is locking the Biden administration into a much more hawkish position on China than they'd otherwise would be if the you know the Trump administration didn't do anything new from now until then. And Jonathan Swan at Axios in particular, he's their top reporter, and he's well-sourced within the Trump campaign. They view him as a friendly ear, and so they tend to leak to him a lot. And so he reported the following story on late Sunday. He said... President Trump will enact a series of hard-line policies during his final 10 weeks to cement his legacy on China, senior administration officials with direct knowledge of the, of the plans tell Axios. Why this matters? He'll try to make it politically untenable for the Biden administration to change course as China aggressively acts aggressively from India to Hong Kong to Taiwan, and the pandemic triggers a second global wave of shutdowns. They say, watch for National Director John Ratcliffe to publicly describe in granular detail intelligence about China's nefarious actions outside the United States. Trump officials plan to sanction or restrict trade with more Chinese companies, government entities, and officials for alleged complicity in human rights violations in Xinjiang and Hong Kong or threatening U.S. national security. The administration will also crack down on China for its labor practices beyond uh, Xinjiang forced labor camps. But don't expect big moves on Taiwan or more closures of Chinese consulates in the United States, those officials say. Now, National Security Council spokesperson John Uyat told Axios, Unless Beijing reverses course and becomes a responsible player on the global stage, future U.S. presidents will find it politically suicidal to reverse President Trump's historic actions. Behind the scenes, senior administration officials are also discussing expanding a Defense Department list of Chinese companies deemed to have ties to the Chinese military. An executive order was issued just last week, barring U.S. investment in 31 such companies and a you know, they're, they're planning on more additions to go onto that list. Officials plan to target China's growing use of forced labor in the highly competitive fishing industry. Coerced and unpaid labor isn't just a human rights concern. It can also give Chinese fishery an advantage over rivals in an industry with geopolitical significance. And finally, Trump officials have been looking to move more hawkish China experts into senior roles across the government. And that was another government official saying that. So, they're already laying out plans for what they're going to do over the next 9 to 10 weeks, and that is positioning the U.S. to be more hawkish towards China and put us in such a position that the Biden campaign and or the Biden administration couldn't change anything moving forward. Now, I think all these ultimately are good news by the Trump administration. There's not a lot of justification for Biden backing out of a lot of these. He could because all this is going to be at the executive level. But if he does, it will make him look weak both abroad and to our allies because China's name is viewed very negatively across the globe by nearly everyone. So, you know, this is going to be actually put them in some kind of bind because they're going to have to answer for why they would run back out of a lot of this. So I found the Trump tweets about Biden winning and him not conceding and this specific story about China to effectively mark the end of the talk of Trump having a viable path forward via the courts on the campaign because it looks like they are effectively planning to move on and give up on this entire thing. Now, if Trump has a silver bullet on this front, we'll see it if they pull it out. Otherwise, this one is, in fact, over. Biden has won. Trump will run again, and now the play, the weight, the full weight of the political world is going to shift to Georgia, 
where the runoffs in the two Senate seats will determine whether or not the Senate is tied 50-50 or Republicans maintain a majority in the Senate. I would make Republicans favored in both of those races, both of those runoffs, uh, but I will save talking about the Georgia runoff for another time because there's plenty of time to jump into that. I just wanted to mention sort of where things are headed after this. And as this thing, as the Trump administration starts winding down a little bit here, I will talk more in depth about what I think will happen in the Biden administration moving forward. So that's where we are. Again, if Trump actually has these lawsuits, I'm happy to look at them and read through them and see what he has here. But for all intents and purposes, it looks like they're beginning to pack up shop and prepare for a Biden administration. So I'm going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we will talk about the virus. Due to the election, the last few weeks I haven't been able to talk about COVID-19 and its continuing spread, but I would remind you right here of my pre-election prediction back in early October. I said then that we could end up holding an election in the middle of a second wave of the virus across the country. That prediction in October ended up being right on all fronts, because we are in the middle of a second wave. Every state that I've seen, except for Vermont and Hawaii, are hot spots, and we're beginning to hit numbers that we have not seen on the coronavirus front since the spring. So we're going to continue with the format that I've been following here, where we go through the top-line numbers and sort of talk through things, and then go through what's happening in Europe, and then the vaccine because these are some really startling numbers. So here are the top-line numbers. We're now averaging close to 1.5 million tests a day, and those numbers continue to go up. Testing is truly incredible, and I no longer have any complaints on the testing front. I know that there are likely issues with accuracy, just given the sheer number of tests that we can do, but now we have the ability to run multiple tests on a person to truly confirm whether it's a true positive or a true negative to get the full truth if we absolutely need to. And so in, in all, you know, concerning all that, we're in a pretty good place on that. So remember that one and a half million tests per day and that number's going up. Along with that, the number of new cases a day has exploded. Now, during the initial spring wave, the peak of new cases across the United States was about 30,000. And remember, we didn't have any testing at this time. We don't actually know what the true positive rate, how many cases we actually had at that time. We know it was a lot. We know it was particularly a lot in a place like New York, where they estimated probably about 25% of the New York City population got it. Either way, from our testing knowledge, we know we had... Well, what we had, there were about 30,000 a day at the peak. During the summer, we hit, we doubled that, and our new cases hit a peak and averaged out at that peak of around 60,000 a day. There was a one-day peak in there where we had over 70,000. So we have a lot more testing than we did then. We are about double where we were in the summer. So we are doing a ton of testing. And I bring all that up just so you can fully comprehend where we are right now. So right now, the seven-day average on new cases coming in every day right now is nearly 150,000. 150,000 new cases a day, 
and it is going up. So our average, our seven-day average right now is more than double the single-day highs of the summer. And Sunday's report brought in additional nearly 140,000. Friday and Saturday saw 170,000 and 163,000, respectively. So well north of 150,000. We could see three times what we were seeing over the course of the summer. And just based on where things are headed right now, and there's no signs any of this is slowing down, we could very easily hit 200,000 new cases a day over the next couple of weeks if none of this changes. So just to nail home, because you know so what some people are saying, well, this is just a result of more testing. We're just testing more people, and so you're going to get more cases as a result of that, which is true. To a point. What you can do to measure this is look at the positivity rate of all these new testing. If the positivity rate stays relatively low, then that might explain why you're seeing more cases. You're just testing more people and finding more as, as a percentage of the population. But that's not happening at all. The seven-day positivity rate of tests coming back with coming back as positive, according to Johns Hopkins University, currently sits at 9.6%. So nearly 1 in 10 tests is coming back positive. Our previous lows after the summer after the summer lull and after the spring lull was around 45 to 4.8%. So we're nearly double that right now. We're over double that actually. And the peak of the summer was 7.8% of tests were coming back. So we are higher than that. You have to go back to the spring when we had inadequate testing to find a national rate of close to 10%, because that's where we are. We're basically sitting right here at 10% of all of our tests coming back. And we've certainly seen above 10% in some of these individual states, some of individual days, and some hot spots. I mean, some days in Tennessee, you were saying 15 20% at some of these peaks, but nationally, we have not seen 10% since the spring. So we are testing now more than ever, but our positivity rate is going up, and it's going up at a pretty steady clip. Another way to track the severity of an outbreak is to look at hospitalizations. During the spring and summer outbreaks, they were both pretty even on this front. The number of current active hospitalizations never went above 60,000, both in the spring and the summer. So these are your worst cases. These are the people who are, who get it and get the sickest. This is also where you're likely going to get your deaths. And the peak would hit just below the 60,000 mark on both of them. It would never cross it. You may have a brief moment in time where it was right at 60,000, but it would start drifting down. The latest report for the COVID tracking project shows that we have nearly 70,000 active hospitalizations right now. So this is a worse outbreak than either the spring or the summer on that front. These are your worst cases, and that's where likely you're going to find your deaths. So when you're seeing these active hospitalizations go up, it also means that you have a healthcare system that is having to take in a lot more COVID patients. So we have more people being hospitalized and more people getting infected, and so on and so forth. And so the hospitalizations are not going to drop until you start seeing a drop in the number of new cases. There's no sign that the number of new cases are dropping, and so we're going to see hospitalizations continue to climb as well. Now, along with that, you would look at the death rate. Now, this is, of course, the most the indicator that it lags the most because you have to test and find out whether or not people have it, 
If you're sick and going to die from this, you're going to probably end up in the hospital or you're going to be going to the doctor to report your symptoms. So you're going to show something along these lines. And so it's, you know, you're talking, I've seen some estimates of four to six weeks here where you're talking about the death rate going up if we're seeing these spikes. The problem is that we're already seeing the death rate climb back up too. Now we're nowhere near where we were in the spring where it was truly awful. We were seeing close to 2,500 people die in a single shot. But they are headed up. Now, during our lulls, when we things would bottom out, we would have about 750 people die a day, which is awful by itself. But it has climbed back up now. The seven-day average is back above 1,000 people a day. We've had a couple days that were either at or over 1,500. And so you're seeing the death rate climb back up. It hasn't quite gone north of where we were in the summer, but it is at the same levels of the summer. Now, hopefully... All the new things that we've learned, all our pharmaceuticals, our therapeutics, every, everything we've learned about how to treat it, hopefully that has made our capacity to lower death rate better. But it's still true that we're also seeing more hospitalizations, which puts a strain on a lot of these hospitals and the healthcare system. So some of these places don't have any more beds. Other places haven't been hit quite as hard. But because this is a truly national outbreak where you're seeing everyone get it all at once and all these states flashing red red indicators all at once, that is a bad sign moving forward. So that's the United States. And this increase is not just in the United States. This is truly a global phenomenon. You can look at places, particularly India and South America, where we're beginning to see more outbreaks. And then Europe, which is where I have focused more and pointed people to look at just because we've seen a lot of thing, bad things happen there. So I was going to share a report from France 24 just because they are trying to do their best to sum up what's happening across the European continent and none of the news coming out of there is very good. So they said that France registered over 32,000 new COVID-19 cases over the previous 24 hours to reach a total of nearly 2 million. Deaths in hospitals in France from COVID-19 rose by 359 over the previous 24 hours to reach a total of over 44,000, according to the French Health Ministry figures. Now, you got to remember, you almost have to treat some of these places a little bit like a state when you're comparing them to the United States because we are so much bigger than some of these countries. And so if you had a state that was running these kinds of numbers that you're seeing in some of these European countries, it'd be very bad. Back to the story. The rise in infections and deaths in France came as a swath of new restrictions were announced or came into force in a number of European countries. Austria on Saturday announced schools and non-essential shops would close from, from Tuesday, just two weeks after partial lockdown was imposed. Quote, there are still many who say that infections don't happen at schools or in shops and services, Chancellor Sebastian Kurtz told a news conference. Quote, but the truth is the authorities can no longer trace 77% of new infections, which means they no longer know where the contamination is happening. Greece, battling a saturated national health system, announced it would shut all schools after imposing a nationwide night curfew from Saturday. Quote, closing elementary schools was the last thing we wanted to do. This is a measure of how serious the situation is, Health Minister Valissus Kiklias said, obviously I can't pronounce that name, secondary schools had already been shuttered. In Italy, the regions of Tuscany and Campania, of which Florence and Naples are the respective capitals, plunged into red zones of tough restrictions, which now covers 26 million of the 60 million population. 
There is no other way if we want to reduce the numbers of dead, said the health minister, as the country's death toll rolls by 544 to 44,000, one of Europe's worst. New antivirus curbs also came into force in Ukraine on Saturday, with all non-essential businesses ordered closed for the weekend. Now, not everybody is taking this and these restrictions well. There were protests in several German cities against enforced mask wearing, with police saying they used water cannon to disperse nearly a thousand people in Frankfurt. France's Riviera resort of Nice saw 1,500 take to the streets to demand a more coherent set of restrictions to fight the disease. French restaurant and bar owners announced legal action against the government, which closed them at the end of October. Hundreds of demonstrators also turned out in Portugal, defying a weekend curfew imposed on seven out of every ten in a population of 10 million. The curfew bans driving on public roads after 1 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. Quote, the pandemic is on and we have to be protected, but without killing the economy, said 33-year-old Carla Torres, who works in Lisbon's hospitality industry. Poland became the latest country to report record figures with 548 coronavirus deaths over 24 hours, just days after the government decided to against introducing a nationwide quarantine. So that's a report from France 24. Obviously, a lot is going there. I think one of the key points from that story is that in Austria, they can no longer trace 77% of the new infections. So they truly don't know where this is happening. And that's why you're seeing these countries shut down again, because they know what they face now, and they also know that they can't trace and find out where it is. So that's true in Europe. That's also going to be true here in the United States. We can't. Tra- we have no idea where any of these things are coming. We have you, when you get into the NFL, where you can track individual people and know where they are. You can do contact tracing. You can't do that in America. And so this is also being true in Europe. They can't track things over there, and they are experiencing numbers on par with what happened to them in the spring. That is the key thing here. The reason you're seeing all these harsh lockdowns is because these governments are facing numbers that they recognize. This is what they experienced in the spring. The difference is this time they actually have the case numbers to back up the deaths and everything else that they're seeing because they have the tests. And you can test and you can find this thing. And so they know they faced a problem and it's not going down. So, and, you know, most of these European countries, they also have socialized healthcare systems. And you can tell when you're reading some of these reports, they cannot handle this load. Now, it's also true that the United States healthcare system can also get overwhelmed, but we also have a much easier capacity to just throw private sector resources at these problems to try and make them go away. That is what we will try to do again, I'm sure, this time. Whether or not that will go well or not, that's, you know, TBD. We don't know. So that's what's happening in America and the United States. The bright spot, of course, is that we now have the vaccine from Pfizer. And if that works, we finally have light at the end of the tunnel. The negative news there is that at the press conference Donald Trump held where he was talking about this, he said he's not anticipating widespread availability of the vaccine until April of next year. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it, or if you know kind of how they're planning on doing this. So the plan is to send this vaccine out in tiers. First, you have to give it to all your healthcare professionals and your first responders. They are the people who are having to deal with all of this. And the fewer doctors you have sick from this, the fewer nurses and just your healthcare professionals and first responders, if they're not getting sick from this anymore, then you can kind of ensure that your your hospitals can take a higher load than if you're losing these people to this disease too. 
or just having them have to sit on the sideline even if they're not dying from it. So that's the first thing. You have to roll it out to them first. From there, you start hitting people in vital positions of leadership and government. You're hitting all these key industries that are important to you know, your defense and things like that. And then from there, you work up from there and you start hitting targeted populations. You probably want to hit your elderly population and get them vaccinated from this so they're not dying quite as much. And then from there, after you get a more targeted set out, that is when you can move to the general population. So I would expect just, you know, judging by, you know, as this starts ramping, it's kind of like testing. We know it's going to be slow at first as they're trying to ramp up their capacity to produce this at mass. And so as they're working through that, there's probably going to be shortages early on as we use up this initial stock and then produce more. And then it's just a matter of getting this out to the public. Donald Trump was talking about using the military to send things out. That will probably end up happening just to ensure this stuff gets there. But it's going to happen in a tiered approach. So it makes sense that we're talking mid-April by the time you're saying, you know, you being able to run out to CVS or somewhere and just get a vaccine like you would get a flu shot. Now, on this point, because I find this kind of interesting here, there was a story about how Ticketmaster this past week, where they said that they were going to require, or rather, some events and some concerts may require people to either had to either have had a negative test or to have had a vaccine before they attend an event. Now, how you prove any of this, I don't know how you're going to do that. But it does raise a possibility of something that we're going to see in the coming year. And that something is this, vaccine packs passports. Now, it wouldn't shock me to see things like workplaces and events, like concerts and more, if they start requiring people to have had that vaccine or negative test before entering, attending, or working. It just wouldn't shock me. I, I half expect that to happen in my own workplace. None of these places wants to be held liable for an outbreak. They don't want to be responsible for one because that will kill their, you know, just their reputation in the media. Earlier in the spring when this was being brought up, people were calling this a vaccine passport. That was just kind of the theoretical name they were giving it as a way of describing this idea. Back then, it was just, you know, theoretical because we didn't have a vaccine. We were just trying to talk through how you would even have a conversation about this in the future because if you were requiring people to stay home when you had a vaccine, you needed a way to give people a way to leave once they had the vaccine. So now that we have the vaccine, this is actually a full possibility here. And so I think you're going to have to start proving in some of these places that you've either had a vaccine or you've had a negative test before you can go there. That's obviously won't be true of all places, but like my office is an open office environment and, you know, in a normal winter, people are sick and they go in there. And so I'm taking emergency and stuff then. So it's easy for stuff to spread. And so I would fully expect for them to want to have that. Now, the big question is this, can you be sued for that? Because not all people are going to, I mean, there's going to be a significant portion of the population that doesn't want to take this. First, as this starts rolling out here while Trump is still president, you're going to have people on the left and the right who are going to say, we don't want this. I mean, you already have Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, saying he's not even going to let his people take the vaccine because he doesn't trust where it's coming from. He's obviously a moron, and he should be treated as a moron because this is one of the worst responses anyone could have. I thought Trump's response was right on this. He was like, well, if he doesn't want it, we won't send it there. It made him sad to have to say that, but that's just the truth. And that is the right response to that, because 
Andrew Cuomo is a moron. He's the only governor, I think you can make a legitimate case, that has blood on his hands for the decisions that he's made. And if he denies his people this vaccine, he deserves to be tarred and feathered as an anti-vax person and as a person who killed actual grand grandmothers and grandfathers in the nursing homes in the spring. He's an awful human being. Aside from that, because I could go off on a tangent on him for a while, aside from that, there is U.S. case law that says the governments can mandate a vaccine in order to, pre- to prevent a virus from spreading. There is case law on that front. There is also case law that you can't force people to do things like have their blood drawn and other things due to religious convictions. So there is going to be some interesting interplay here as these various as these various states have to deal with this and have to deal with whether or not you force people to get this vaccine. There's a lot of potential litigation here. Just thinking about it makes my head spin because I can see all the various things that people are going to say and do on this front. I know for my purposes, I'll probably end up having to get one just because if I have to go back into work to do a training or I have to travel because I tend to business travel at least once or twice a year for work. And so, you know, there are some airlines that are already requiring that you have to wear a mask if you get on. I could see them very easily adding testing or vaccine requirements just because they don't want to be held liable. And so... There is a lot of stuff that's going to happen here. You can Google this and search it if you want about a vaccine passport. People have been talking about it for a while, and up until now, it hasn't been a really a thing that you even could even do. But with places like Ticketmaster saying, well, events and concerts could require you to have some of this stuff, that could change what people think about this. So I think we're going to see many more hot spots on this. And you're obviously seeing the same thing over in Europe, too. You have people beginning to protest over there for the, the draconian various restrictions that they're being faced with. And so people do not like these. And that is why I do not think it is a smart idea to for a future Biden administration to do a lockdown to try to get control of the virus just because people have already faced this multiple times and I don't think they want to do it anymore. Now, they could try that. You'll probably tank the economy and it'll make people really mad. So I wouldn't do that. I think it's politically a very bad idea. But I also think forcing people to take a vaccine is also going to be a politically bad idea. That would probably, a government is just going to be forced to do it because you don't want this virus spreading anymore and wrecking your entire economy and your country any more than you can. So that's where we are. I I really do think this vaccine is going to be the next major culture war flashpoint on this front. If it happens under a Biden administration, it'll be left and right. I think you'll see all the crazies come out. So that is something to look forward to. I honestly think this vaccine thing, I wrote a column on this back in the summer too, where I said the future fight on over vaccines would make the the fights over masks that would make that look tame and like a you know spring or a nice summer day. I think it'll honestly be, this will honestly be true because people aren't going to want to have a vaccine for one reason or another. It's really going to look tame in comparison that that mask debate. You're going to look back at that and laugh when you can start comparing it to the vaccine debate. So that is where we're heading on that front. That's all I've got for the coronavirus update for this week. Lots of numbers. We're in a second wave. We need those to turn around, but I don't see anywhere where they will turn around anytime soon. So that's all I've got for the show this week. We're just going to jump right into the light item for this week. This week's light item takes us back to the election. The Republican wave election of 2020 will have ramifications for years down the road, and I wanted to highlight two victories that happened out in California in in the House. 
for the first time in American history, two Korean American women were elected to Congress. And they are Michelle Steele of California 48, District 48 out there, and Young Kim of California District 39. Most of them are conservative Republicans, and according to the Orange County Republican Party, it is the first time that incumbent Democrats have lost a seat to a Republican, to a Republican candidate since 1994. That is 26 years ago. And it happened twice out there with these two. So I thought I would share Ms. Michelle Steele's victory message that she sent out on social media after, after a victory. So here she is talking to her supporters. To those who worked for me, canvassed, and phone banked for me, gave up their nights and weekends, and put their lives on hold for me, some for almost two years, I sincerely thank you. To those staff, volunteers, interns, supporters, citizens, and constituents who voted for me, know that you weren't voting for a person, but for the idea that the American dream is alive and well in Orange County. That minorities who might not look like you or talk like you can come from humble beginnings and not only have a place in this Republican Party, but can be elected to Congress from the best district in the best state in the Union. That's what I will be taking with me to Washington. The notion that conservative ideas transcend gender, race, religion, or nationality and that smart people can and will elect the right conservative no matter where they came from or what they look like. We worked hard to get here today, but our work is not done yet. I will not forget the ideas that got me here. And when I get to Washington, I intend to hit the ground running, representing Orange County and being a force for smaller government and lower taxes you can count on. Thank you, and God bless you. So that is Michelle Steele, newly elected representative from California. Quite a victory. In all the seats that Republicans have flipped so far, the winners were some combination of a female, a minority, or a veteran. Usually a combination of the above. So it was quite a year for Republicans. Uh, one of the best columns that I read about it called it the Year of the Republican Woman. I think I even have that linked in the newsletter. So if you'd like to read it, go check that out. And they are obviously, all House Republicans actually, are all well positioned for 2022. Because if you have a Democratic administration here, it is likely that you will see Republicans gain seats because that is typically what happens in a midterm year, unless you see some outstanding event happen that shifts things otherwise. So the other interesting note on that front is that in in the House, Democrats, specifically Nancy Pelosi, they are telling Joe Biden and his potential administration here that they don't want them to take House members to be in the administration. They don't want any House members. They probably don't even want any Senate members because it looks like the majority here is going to be very narrow. In all the remaining seats that are left open here, 
Republicans are leading in all of them in the vote counts. And so if that holds, Pelosi is only going to have about a three-vote majority. So you need 218 votes for a majority, and House Democrats could have 221 or 222. So only three to four people here that could give them their actual majority. And if you start poaching these people, as Biden could, into his administration, all of a sudden you got to have elections for those people. And also you take them out of the House, which narrows the majority even further. So that's what's happening in the House right now. Nancy Pelosi is freaking out over whether or not she's going to lose people to the administration and not have a working majority in the House. Good luck to her. I wish her all the best. Some Republicans were actually joking that they could all get together in the House and defeat Pelosi and give someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the votes to become the new Speaker of the House just to help to destroy the Democratic Party, which is kind of Machiavellian. I wouldn't want to raise her up to be in that kind of position of power, but it was pretty funny that if it's going to be this close, you could actually cause that kind of chaos if you're a Republican. I don't think they're going to just because Nancy Pelosi is the best thing that ever happened to the House Republicans because they can run on her and beat her up, and you're almost guaranteed to have that victory waiting for you in 2022. So that's what's ahead for the House. That's all I've got for this week's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 